water coolians that is a wrap on another year and now we are to another best of episode i mean what the heck what the heck was 2021 the year flew by but at the same time it, it kind of felt like it struggled to get to the conclusion to the end we spent the year dealing with supply chain issues including the ever given running aground in the suez canal i think a lot of us felt that whether it be in food distribution or just at your local stores, retail workers, the friends had their reunion. They got back together as friends. The U.S. ended a 20-year-long war in Afghanistan. iCarly was rebooted. Almost a year ago now, the insurrection on January 6th. And because of the year that followed, the U.S. being named a backsliding democracy. And the world once again failing to meet climate change goals and being hit by more extreme weather events like droughts flooding, wildfires, tornadoes, and monsoons, to name a few. But we also spent the year developing and administrating 8.47 billion COVID-19 vaccines across the globe. Simone Biles brought a much-needed powerful light to mental health and athletics. Squid Game showed that the world is bigger than just the content made in the U.S. and maybe, just maybe, give subtitles on foreign films and shows a chance. Also, we had GameStop and Wall Street Bets help people realize Wall Street is pretty much a sham, but in the end, will anything really be done about it? Hopefully. NASA also made oxygen on Mars, and people are interested in space again. Uh, some of them happen to be billionaires, but that's beside the point. People are interested in space again. And Uber drivers were given rights in the UK, hopefully across the world they eventually will, and also, speaking of across the world, workers continue to fight for better pay and treatment. Sometimes it's easy to lose sight of what happened and what added to the world. As for us, water coolants, we succeeded and we failed. Looking back a year ago on what was promised for 2021 seemed like some very, very lofty goals. But the show got more consistent, you guys grew, our conversations grew. For the first time since the beginning of the show, people asked to be guests on the show. And so for 2022, it continues. Consistency. I don't want to really promise anything because I want the content to come when the content is needed. Also, I'm just one guy. I spent 2021 with a new relationship, a new job, and a lot of good moments. A lot more good moments than bad, I'll say. So I'll call 2021 a significant win. I'm excited for 2022. For the possibilities and the opportunity to build new conversations and explore more within those conversations. Diving deep into the ethos of this show, the show has always been just that. Just me, in my basement, I'm actually recording this right now in my room, so not in my basement at the moment, having conversations with other individuals because I'm interested in what they have to say and I want to feel more connected to the world. To learn more about what drives humanity and how, through conversation, we can make our world a better place, not just for us, but those who will come after us. So with that, I present to you the best of 2021 episode. This episode includes the top five stories from Water Cooler Talk's 2021 guest slate based on a combination of what we both found interesting. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk episode 75 titled Best of 2021. Enjoy! This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not. Because they're real. All right, this first news story is from the National Post, April 28th, 2021. Justin Trudeau and the CRTC 
are coming for your cat videos. Once hailed as a stronghold of free speech, the internet is increasingly falling under the grip of state censors worldwide. China is purging dissent, India silencing its critics, and Canada's liberals recently made changes to a bill that would allow authorities to control the content that people post to sites like YouTube and TikTok. For those unaware, Canada's current ruling party is the Liberal Party. Following Chinese director Chloe Zhao's Oscar win, social media in China was flooded with congratulatory messages. Within hours, Chinese censors put in the work to scrub most of those comments from the internet due to unflattering statements she had made in the past about her homeland. But that's China, a conversation for later in the episode. Unfortunately, the democratic world can no longer look down on dictatorships like China because some governments are increasingly taking pages from their authoritarian playbook, using the internet to keep a big brother watchful eye on their own populations and censoring opinions that are critical to those in power. And then along comes Canada. Recently, the Liberal-dominated Heritage Committee, which is one of 16 standing committees that study and review legislation before it becomes official, voted to remove a clause from Bill C-10, which to put in layman's terms is a bill that amends Canada's current Broadcasting Regulation Act to include things like online streaming platforms. But the clause would have exempted videos posted to sites like YouTube and TikTok from falling under those same regulations by the Canadian Radio, Television, and Telecommunications Commission, the CRTC. According to those who introduced the bill, Bill C-10's intent is to give the CRTC the ability to regulate, quote, giant streaming platforms or social media companies and ensure they contribute to and promote Canadian content. In the absence of the clause that was removed, Canadian users who upload videos to social media or streaming platforms would technically not be considered broadcasters, but their content would still be subjugated to the same regulation broadcasters, such as in TV and radio, are. What form that regulation will take is still anyone's guess, as the bill does not currently include any details of what that regulation may look like, but if the bill is passed, it gives the CRTC the power to fill in those details at a later date, thus giving the Canadian federal government the power to control everything from videos of animals to young people dancing in the street. It's a safe bet that any government that starts out by regulating something as innocuous as a cat video or a teen dancing to the latest trend could eventually expand to encompassing political speech. In fact, Canada's current broadcasting regulations are a direct result of the government trying to use their power to silence their critics. Even if the CRTC chose not to use its newfound powers right away, it's still a potentially dangerous precedence. The world has seen firsthand how the Chinese government uses its control over the internet to silence its critics, and how democracies like India are using their laws to limit political speech. Giving similar power to Canadian officials could be a recipe for disaster. So as listeners know, with every news article that appears on the show, everything I just said is my own summary of the contents of said article. In complete transparency with this article, it did take me a few days to truly understand the ins and outs of what is occurring in Canada with Bill C-10. So listener, if you want a, a really good, more detailed look at the situation, I highly recommend listening to a recent episode Daniel released on his podcast, The Long Way, titled Free Speech and Broadcast Regulations. So as uh, we kind of talked about, you have this uh, illustrious career in journalism, 16 years of experience in Canada. W what was that experience like in terms of how the freedoms around uh, expression, speech, journalism changed in that time? That's an interesting question. But I never had in any of those years any concern about free speech, not the slightest, never worried about it, never worried about it from the perspective of my employer never worried about it from the perspective of government it wouldn't even concern wouldn't have crossed my mind to worry about it in terms of government it was just a given it was 
just the, the normal way you did things. Now, that doesn't mean that anyone just said anything that they wanted, right? There were still journalistic principles that you followed. There were still, you know, uh, there was a, a code of ethics for for journalists, that sort of thing. Not mm-hmm. not to say that everyone necessarily adheres to it or that it's the same <laughs> for everybody, but you know, these things these things exist. You know, in my time as a journalist, I can't say that it was really ever an issue. I believe Canada has a charter of rights, which is similar to our Bill of Rights here in the U.S. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And so one of those rights give you that freedom of expression. Well, the the Canadian charter recognizes uh, free speech as a fundamental right. Mm -hmm. That's a right that we have by virtue of being people. You know, and it it recognizes that right. That right pre-exists. Actually, it pre-exists the, the the charter. It didn't have to be on paper in us for for us to have that freedom. That's the freedom we have as 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 people, and the the constitutional documents simply recognize that. And so, I mean, when you get a bill like Bill C ten that conflicts with that statement, you know, should Canadians, you know, not just content creators, should they be concerned? Well, I mean, there is a lot of concern. About this, I think we need to be. I think we need to be very wary as as people. That's my personal opinion. That um, you know, when we get into the the questions of regulation and and government control of what people are posting online or what people are are saying uh, via social media, whether it's a a cat video or something else. You know, the cat videos themselves, they're not really the issue. Yes. (laughs) The issue is um, whether regulators are going to be playing a role in what gets posted, in what gets approved, in what becomes discoverable via YouTube, all those sorts of questions, and what criteria they're going to place there which, by the way, are still quite vague. So there are multiple problems with that because when you've got that kind of regulation, it can have, as Michael Geist was a guest on on my own podcast, he's a University of Ottawa professor and he's a very noted free speech advocate uh, and a legal expert on top of that. He he made a, a really great point. He said, in in a country like Canada, I'm paraphrasing here, you don't speak with permission of the state, mm-hmm. and and he's right about that. And we haven't been speaking with permission of the state all of these years, and I'm not suggesting that it would become that way uh, tomorrow if the bill were passed and uh, became law today. But the, the potential most certainly is there, and the direction is there, and I think that's what's concerning. In a democratic world, you should not have to ask your government to speak freely. You know, I'm firmly in the camp, which I hope most people are in this camp, that humans should have the option to express themselves freely wherever they are in the world. Obviously, with that, you know, as you talked about journalistic integrity, you know, your words do have consequences, and you can't just say whatever you want to say whatever you want. But then to the aspect of opinions, you know. I have opinions, you have opinions, some of those opinions, you know, may connect, some of those opinions may not connect. If we live in a world where we're only allowed to have one consistent opinion, my way or the highway, you cr- you crush free expression. You we basically stop becoming humans. We become this this mindless workforce. You know, I'm I'm a firm believer that utopias are basically impossible, as close to as impossible. We're, we're not uh, here at Water Cooler Talk. We don't deal in absolutes. We're not the Sith. But <laughs> I do believe it's, it's very hard to get to that 
idea of utopia because one of the things about a utopia is you give up your individualism. You know, my utopia may look different than your utopia looks. And it's just not possible to get to that point where we can all believe in the same thing and be happy about it and, and enjoy what our lives are becoming. Like you said, it's not just the cat videos. It could be something greater. You know, maybe this administration that's currently in power, maybe they don't use this power if this bill is passed for something bad. But putting it in place and another administration comes along that says, well, hey, this is kind of an interesting outlook that we could use to kind of control our nation a bit more Then, yeah, eventually someone is going to use that inch to take a mile or to the meter system. I think it's like 2.5 centimeters to like one and a half kilometers or something like that. Yeah, yeah. The exact give an inch and take a mile conversion to the metric system is give 2.54 centimeters and take 1.61 kilometers. But if you give people that option, eventually someone is going to take it. I mean, I think that's the I think that's the danger here. It's not a mark of a healthy society where we're so fearful of each other. And I think I, I had read this somewhere else too, where I think the 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 hidden implication in a bill like Bill C ten is that the government doesn't trust perhaps the people with their right to speak, to speak freely. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, I think we're also witnessing uh, the people not really trusting the government with the power to uh, to govern that. There's a real breakdown of trust. And that's problematic because you, you need to have that trust sort of flowing in both ways in order to have you know a healthier society, a more flourishing society, and one that works better and one that can accommodate all our differences. We're never all going to be the same. And that trust doesn't break down overnight. No. This is uh, years and years of you know broken promises. And I know specifically, um, just from what I read, so maybe you can correct me on this, but the, the Liberal Party has kind of has a different look than it did when it got elected in 2015 as it does today. As far as like transparency and, you know, ah. uh, public goods and stuff of that nature. Well, I mean, I don't want to get uh, overly partisan. Yes. Mm -hmm. But I, I will say this, that there are, you know, promises that have been broken uh, around things like transparency uh, or even access to information laws. I think you might call them freedom of information in the U.S., where these things were supposed to be fixed. These things are supposed to be getting better. They're not getting better. They're getting worse. You know, there there are things like that. I, I, I think one of the things that worries me is the tone of conversation often when we disagree. Disagreement is going to happen. Disagreement is healthy. It's okay. You know, we don't all have to agree on the same thing. In, in some of the rhetoric around Bill C-10, for example, I know one of the responses from the prime minister in Canada is to dismiss critics of the bill as wearing tinfoil hats. <laughs> and that's, you know, I, I get it that in the House of Commons, sometimes the rhetoric runs hot and, and, and you're upset with, with your political opponents. But, you know, that kind of comment about what I think are some pretty reasonable concerns from a very wide array of people that don't all fall on the same side of the political spectrum, I think that should make any government 
I don't care what stripe of government, but it should make any mm-hmm. government pause. Uh, once you start villainizing somebody who disagrees with you and you try to uh, silence that individual or that group or that movement, that becomes an issue. It, it really does. And looking at Bill C-10, trying to kind of understand both sides and why this bill would be put in place, why it shouldn't be put in place, I understand wanting to uh, have pride in the content that your country creates, You know, wanting to promote Canadian content. But as a content creator myself, and maybe you feel similar or maybe you might feel different, but I want the option to create the best possible content. I don't want to have to be limited by, I think in Canada, for something to be on TV, it has to have like 50, 55% of the content like written, produced by a Canadian citizen. According to the CRTC, Canadian content on Canadian broadcasting stations must have 50% of their daily content be of Canadian origin, aka having Canadian creators, writers, producers, etc. I mean, this is just a broad generalization of just content in general and uh, the support of content, but your content should be able to stand alone. Like to kind of wrap that up in in a bow, I understand the reasoning for this, but I mostly agree with the fact that this is a option of controlling that expression. Yeah, I mean, I'm, like like I said, I'm not a, I'm not an expert on the Canadian content rules. I do know that there are rules for what is considered Canadian content, and radio stations, for example, that play music have to play a certain percentage that come from you know Canadian musicians or that are considered Canadian. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we we watch plenty of American shows here, for example, that are you know, 0% Canadian content. Uh, and I don't know where Star Trek falls because, you know, William Shatner and Jimmy Doohan were both Canadian, but yeah. in any case. So, I, I mean, yeah, there are there are content rules and that sort of thing, but I, you, you've just pointed at really what the problem is, and Michael Geist and others have, have pointed this out as well, that the, the law, this new law, this new bill anyway, is in a sense treating content creators, you, me, uh, anyone else who might post something on YouTube or somewhere else in the same way that they would perhaps uh, deal with the CBC or a major broadcaster. Yes. It's not the same thing. And you can't you can't treat these things the same way. I, I think that's a legitimate point and a legitimate criticism of the bill. But the other issue is when it comes to really harmful things on the internet you know images of 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 child sexual abuse or something like that mm-hmm. and these things these things are out there and um or really hateful comments there are laws to deal with that sort of thing already yet the broadcast regulator doesn't get into that sort of thing that there are criminal laws to deal with those things already whatever way we 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 look at this thing it just seems like bill c10 is a huge overreach. Yeah. And even, you know, I know some of the supporters explain it as to help with copyright, but there, like you said, there's already laws in place for copyright. You know, there's already laws in place for hate speech, for child pornography. So why are you taking out this uh, exclusion that says I can post this stuff on things like YouTube or TikTok or Instagram and all these other uh, social media platforms? You know, it's kind of a, a sense to me, it feels like Canada's push for more nationalism. Do you do you see this as a or, or what could be a potential push for Canadian nationalism? Well, I mean, it depends what you mean by by nationalism. Um, nationalism in Canada sometimes is synonymous with anti-Americanism. We we often well, I think nationalism just in general is that 
devotion to the interest of one's own nation. Right. When we have the Winter Olympics, you guys up north are our enemies. You know, we're we're rooting for at least our women to beat you in the sport you invented. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't say luck. the same about the men. It's been a while, but. <laughs> um, look, I think when it comes to culture, I'm not sure about you know nationalism and and, and all those sorts of things because that's a, it's become quite a quite a loaded term mm-hmm. but here's what i can tell you about about culture culture i think is at least canadian culture is what canadians themselves express you know i'm not i'm not saying for a moment that government can't come alongside and support cultural industries or or that sort of thing lord knows that has happened a lot in canada but Canadian culture is what Canadians themselves express. So when I go outside the house and I see kids who are playing street hockey, they're expressing Canadian culture. No one had to tell them to do that. No one had to give them orders. No one even had to subsidize it. They just did it because that's sort of the the culture that comes and and expresses itself when Canadians are constantly apologizing although that's a that's a it's a bit of a myth but you know it's it's part of culture and and character that sort of works its way and expresses itself uh quite naturally and i, I think that's a healthier view of what culture is mm, rather yes. than we have to we need we need to e- express ourselves and we need to defend ourselves against some kind of uh, foreign influence and um you know make sure we don't lose our canadian uh, identity i i'm not a, a big fan of taking that defensive a posture mm-hmm. that's not to say that you know there's never any such thing as a as a cultural threat i just think we need to be we just don't need to be that enthusiastic and uh, concerned about all kinds of foreign influences as if there constantly is some kind of threat <laughs> hanging over our heads. We're trying to we're trying to take over Canada, Daniel. Don't you know this? <laughs> but no, I, I love I love the way you describe that. I love the way you look at that. That's a, such a beautiful way of looking at that. You know, obviously solidarity is important, but you know, I'm a big believer that culture is the culmination of our shared experiences and, you know, we don't necessarily need I think Rogers telecommunications is like the big company out there. We don't need them shoving content down our face that says, look at us, we're Canada or be America, be America. It's like, no, I get it. I, I can go outside and I can play baseball or I mean, we love hockey here in Minnesota. So yeah. it's it's hard to kind of discern between uh, the US and Canada when I literally live in Minnesota, which like I said, is little Canada. Uh, but where you live really defines your culture. And that's why, you know, we have these borders and we have these different ways of living because we're defined by where we live and the people we surround ourselves with and the cultures that we create, you know, the traditions that we create and the stories that we share. And it's important that that's the focus because as you said, that's a lot healthier than Rogers or a Bell, I believe is another one, trying yeah, to shove nationalism and this solidarity down our throat. Let me give you another example of what I what I would call sort of a quintessential Canadian cultural thing. Again, that didn't require anyone to develop it. It just it just happens naturally. I grew up in Toronto, and my my friends I remember in high school we were quite a motley crew. I had I had sort of five close friends. One was of an American background. Two were from Chinese background, Hong Kong and the Philippines. Chinese from the Philippines, I mean. One was of Guyanese background, and one was of Greek extraction, like me. You know, that's what 
growing up in Canada is for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. That's how it is growing up in Toronto. We all had in a in in different ways kind of an an immigrant experience, uh, or at least our parents did. And you know what? It was it was just a great thing, and we all got along regardless of where we came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it wasn't something you had to overthink. You weren't overthinking it. It was just a, a natural ability of living where you lived and being surrounded by, you know, it sounds like a good range of friends. Yeah, it, it was, um, it was fun. And it was, it was fun to have some friend, you go over to his house, you're having curry and, and it was good. And uh, <laughs> other friends, you're eating real Chinese food. Um, mm-hmm. And they were having Greek food at my place. Well, all right, Natasha, are you ready to go on to our final news story of the episode? Yes, I am. All right. This is from the Washington Post Education, May 29th, 2021. Critical race theory ban leads Oklahoma College to cancel class that taught, quote, white privilege. Melissa Smith says she has never used the words critical race theory in her Oklahoma Community College course on race and ethnicity, although her syllabus does ask students to learn about racial inequality in the United States from health to criminal justice to housing and to, quote, recognize the extent of privilege, prejudice and discrimination in our society. Kind of what we were just talking about. She remembers taking a similar course at the University of Central Oklahoma in the early 2000s. These classes have been taught forever, she states. But Oklahoma is among a wave of Republican-led states scrutinizing and seeking to reshape how teachers talk about race. This month, Governor Kevin Stitt signed what many refer to as a ban on the teaching of critical race theory in schools, a bill, he said, that would make sure taxpayer money is not used to, quote, define and divide young Oklahomans about their race or sex. A week and a half later, Melissa learned that her fully enrolled class at Oklahoma City Community College was canceled for the summer, a course she had taught for several years. Eric Worrell, a spokesman for the college, in an email stated, After learning more about HBSB 1775, the aforementioned bill, and how it essentially revokes any ability to teach critical race theory, including discussions of white privilege, from required courses in Oklahoma, we recognize that HBSB 1775 would require substantial changes to the curriculum for this class, Melissa's class, particularly. Worrell said the course is not gone, but instead, quote, paused for the time being. The college still believes in teaching about racism, But until administrators have, quote, more time to get this right or to let the legal issues play out with other universities and colleges, the course will remain paused. So basically letting another university jump in first. Republican supporters say that these statewide bans targeting certain teachings are meant to prevent groupthink and shaming of white students or teachers as oppressors. For an example, public school classes should not include the idea that, quote, any individual should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress on account of his or her race or sex. The bill will also ban teaching the idea that anyone's race or sex determines their, quote, moral character or makes them, quote, inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. Critics say these bills are misconstruing the more nuanced treatments of racism unfolding in schools and worry about the chilling effect on teaching of critical issues. Melissa states, Our history of the United States is uncomfortable, and it should make us uncomfortable. We should grow from that. Get comfortable being uncomfortable. And if I don't make you uncomfortable in class, then I'm not doing my job. Teaching on race and racism is a fiercely partisan issue, with the academic lens of critical race theory becoming a catch-all term and a flashpoint for broader cultural wars. The theory, which has been taught in colleges since the 1970s, 
holds that racism is systemic and embedded in policies rather than just perpetuated by bigoted people. The murder of George Floyd and the worldwide mass protests that followed pushed schools to incorporate more teaching on systemic racism, which prompted conservative backlash. Former President Donald Trump last year told federal agencies to stop trainings linked to critical race theory. Current President Biden quickly rescinded Trump's measures, but Republican campaigns against critical race theory have continued in local state houses like Arkansas, Idaho, Tennessee, and Texas, who have all passed bans similar to the most recent bill passed in Oklahoma. In Oklahoma City, which tends to lean slightly right politically, where Smith teaches both community college and high school students, the City Board of Education denounced the ban. Board member Ruth Fields said the legislation was, quote, an insult in a district that's mostly students of color, and Superintendent Sean McDonald has called it a, quote, solution looking for a problem which does not exist. Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt said the law should not keep educators from broaching dark history such as the Tulsa Race Massacre and the Trail of Tears, and stated, To be sure, we must keep teaching history in all of its complexities and encourage honest and tough conversations about our past. Nothing in this bill prevents or discourages those conversations. In fact, this bill clearly endorses teaching to the Oklahoma academic standards, which were written by Oklahoma educators and include events like the Oklahoma City bombing, the Tulsa Race Massacre, the emergence of Black Wall Street, Oklahoma City lunch counter sit-ins led by Clara Looper, and the Trail of Tears. We can and should teach this history without labeling a young child as an oppressor or requiring he or she feel guilt or shame based on their race or sex. As for Melissa and her students, Oklahoma City Community College says it has made sure that students who need Melissa's course for their requirements can enroll in something else and that Melissa will be compensated for the class that was paused. But she says it's, quote, just ridiculous that her course apparently cannot teach about white privilege if Oklahoma law remains in place. Usually, she typically tackles the subject with lots of questions like, what is your definition of privilege? What does that mean? And gives students examples of privilege from her own life. But unless those new laws change, she says that conversation won't be happening. But it's not going to happen in Oklahoma, Natasha. It's going to happen here on Water Cooler Talk. So I think, Natasha, the big conversation from this that has been this partisan issue is, do you see these conversations as being appropriate to have? Short answer, yes. Long answer. One thing that I actually want to say, Adam, is the term critical race theory in itself. Honestly, I know what it is, but I didn't know that it had that title attached to it because how can you think of racism in any other way? I naturally, my mind goes to the fact that racism is systemic. So I didn't even know that critical race theory was like a term for it until I don't know this year probably mm-hmm. and this is coming from someone who tackles these issues like every single day. So with that being said, it's really interesting that they would choose to ban something like this because it seems like it's coming from a place of white guilt and I don't know why white guilt is so prevalent because again it's talking about racism as a system like i'm not sitting here saying like you adam are a terrible person because you're white it's the idea that whiteness is a power structure it's a part of a power structure and in this case being white has more privileges to it than being a person of color right so it's not even about that white individuals have always been the majority rulers throughout history 
and they kind of have created the systems because I mean, it, it, it makes sense. You know, it's not something you have to agree with, but it makes sense that if you're in the ruling party, you're going to create policies and laws that support the people that look like you, that sound like you, that believe in the same things mm-hmm. that you believe in. Exactly. Exactly. So it's tough because the way that I always view it, and I mean, I have this conversation with everyone, um, with my boyfriend, with my friends, whether they're white or whether they aren't. Mm-hmm. It's like how I was just saying um, how I have friends who are very left, but they still are hesitant to fully support abolition. Being uncomfortable is a small price to pay for the fact that so much death, so much harm, so much pain has occurred to a certain community. I'm fine being uncomfortable even in my own privileges, knowing that that's what I have to do to eradicate the pain that is being inflicted on uh, marginalized communities. Or like I would tell a white person, you should be uncomfortable because if you think about it in the past, like you weren't the one to experience being a slave, right? Like you weren't enslaved. Black folks were enslaved and white folks were the ones enslaving them. Yeah, I just think people need to be uncomfortable. And I feel like this kind of law um, that they that they have in Oklahoma and other similar leading states is an issue because it's showing that they don't want to be uncomfortable. And I feel like if you're in a position of power, uh, you have to be okay with that. It's interesting because the article mentioned it's okay, like you as a teacher can still cover the Tulsa massacre and like the Trail of Tears. <laughs> their, their buzzword, their buzzword uh, genocides yeah. and massacres that they always go to. Yeah. And it's like, how do you cover that without critical race theory? Mm-hmm. Because those are things that happened in the past. Like those are literally embedded in history. So that's in itself, those are stories within critical race theory. Those are stories that are that are systemic in the way that the way their causes were systemic, but also the fact that they occurred caused, you know, what happens after that, too. Yeah. When I think you look at something like to use one of their buzzwords, like the Tulsa race massacre that just had an anniversary recently, mm-hmm. and you look at what the news was reporting from Tulsa after that day. And I think been going around social media, but the headline was, you know, two white dead in black riot. Well, that's not exactly, I think it was some KKK members throwing dynamite out of planes and, Mm -hmm. you know, causing this havoc. But like you were saying, so much of what the future in, for instance, Tulsa was created because the media and just the people in general and the people, the ruling, quote unquote, ruling party was able to create a narrative that fit them because it didn't challenge their beliefs. And as we were talking about with, you know, friends of different political beliefs. I'm always someone who is questioning why. As a white male, surprise for anyone who didn't know, as a white male, I understand that history, a lot of history has been dominated by white men. And as I've you know previously mentioned, when that happens, a lot of laws and policies and borders and territories and how we look and uh, treat people is created by those ruling parties. And, you know, I don't necessarily believe in this white patriarch, but I do believe that there's this elite white patriarch. My family came from very poor farmers, you know, whether it be in Poland or Sweden. But I also understand the benefits I've received from that white elite party of the founding fathers. The founding fathers, you know, it's described as they're these just drunken idealists. But really, they were a lot of very high profile people in high profile positions that could make that change. But I also understand that I had benefited from that. And I think that's the important part as a white male is to question 
how we got here mm-hmm. and what that looks like for somebody that looks different than me, that believes in different things than me, and that sounds different than me. I think people conflate a lot of things together when they're talking about white privilege. Like white privilege is purely privilege based on the fact that you are white. It obviously intersects, but because you are white, you get there are ways for you to get ahead even if you are not the richest person, even if you are poor, whatever it may be, you know, like to understand white privilege, you have to remove that detail from it because it's based on the fact that when someone looks at you and they see that they're white, they're probably going to be more comfortable giving you a job or more comfortable Mm -hmm. doing whatever it is that they need you to do. After that, after someone fully understands what white privilege is, then they can go ahead and add in all these other factors such as like, class, gender, these types of things. And mm-hmm. that's where it's difficult because honestly, I, I think it's really impressive that before critical race theory was banned and everything, the fact that this college had a class on white privilege, because I feel like that's honestly really hard to find. And it breaks my heart in that sense too, because there are very few classes that tackle that topic, like just in the country, in the world, probably in general. And the fact that that is now not an option, at least for right now, we don't know what's going to happen, is definitely an issue. And it's also important to think about the fact that when we ask, should our kids, our college age adults ready to have these conversations it's like yes they have to be ready they are ready yeah mm -hmm. um where else are they gonna learn it i mean i even had this when i was at the u of m for undergrad i really wanted to implement more of these types of topics into the curriculum for first year students within the college of liberal arts but then i was met with that hesitancy of like a lot of these students are coming from small towns whatever it is, whatever the excuse is. So this might be a lot to like, unload on them at once. And I'm just like, they need to have this like this is, yeah, it's going to be a lot. But where else are they going to have the opportunity to learn this again to reckon with the past? I mean, you're 18 years old, I think you can handle a little bit of like, I think you can hear things that are hard to hear. a little bit of 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 a questioning of your beliefs and you know that's why i've always been kind of in the camp that i don't necessarily blame somebody who for example grew up in a rural southern state who grew up around mm-hmm. all white individuals grew up in a town for example a sundown town where viewing a white individual as more important than any other race was the normal. That's a, that's one of the thing when we talk about dividing factors is I don't think race is the most divided factor. I don't think religion. I don't think sexuality, gender. I think location is the ultimate dividing factor of humanity. We're both born in Minneapolis or Minnesota, but if we go far back into our lineages, we became who we are because our ancestors happened to be born in a certain part of the world. And we had no control over that, but it was the basis of everything that we became and everything that our families became and everything that we believed in and everything that we look like. Europeans have more thinner noses because it's cold and it's better for circulation that way. You look at uh, black individuals having the kind of hair they have because it's better for heat in the middle of the African deserts and stuff of that nature. Mm -hmm. Like That's all it is. It's just happenstance that we have these differences and we've used these differences to create division and to say, I'm better than you just because by pure luck, because it is pure luck that we are here mm-hmm. on this earth, that the earth was even created the way it was, that evolution got us to this point, And we're using 
just the smallest difference to create division, to create war. There's a reason wars still happen. Mm -hmm. We literally kill people because they might look different than us. You know, genocides happen because people believe in different things. They look different. And it's just complete bullshit that it was just per happenstance that your people were in a different location than my people. And we said, because of that, go fuck yourself. Literally, Adam, I think about this all the time. I honestly wish I could shake people sometimes. And, you know, they'll be like, I'm better because I'm white, for example. And it's like, what did you do to be white? You <laughs> Absolutely were born. Nothing. Like, <laughs> literally, like you, I can't help that I am Indian, that I'm brown, and I'm very happy mm -hmm. to have brown skin. I'm very happy to be Indian. But like, you can't help that you're a white man. You know, I can't help that I'm a woman. It's just so bizarre, honestly. To I always think about it like, because we were born in Minnesota, we have to hate people in Wisconsin, mm -hmm. you know, might like the Vikings and they might like the Packers. And we love those teams and we're diehards for those teams just because we were born in a certain state. That blows my mind every time that that's that that's what causes people to literally attack other people over a result of a football game. I actually think about that a lot, too, because you know how the term bandwagon is really prevalent in sports, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'll say that I support a team, whatever, mostly for fun. And my brother will be like, oh, you're such a bandwagon fan. And I'm like, but you're supporting the Vikings because you were born in Minnesota. If you were <laughs> yeah. born someone else, then you wouldn't support the Vikings. You'd support whatever team is there. So how does how is that not bandwagon? Mm -hmm. I feel like that can be like a larger metaphor for all of this. It's unreal, like the lengths to which people will go. And it really just stems from the fact that people want to be comfortable. They don't want to be uncomfortable. They want to live with what they have. And a lot of times people don't think about the fact that what they have is on the backs of other people. Mm -hmm. I benefit from something because someone else isn't benefiting. And I want a society to be where we all benefit and no one faces the harm of us benefiting, right? Like we should all be able to live comfortably. We should all be able to be happy, healthy, whatever it is. But where we are right now, like me, purchasing something from H&M is harming someone somewhere. It's really heartbreaking. I've had, you know, this similar conversation with Cecil when we talked about like Serena Williams being an ambassador for Nike. And obviously we know mm -hmm. the Nike situation, but can you do more positive than you're taking away negative? I have a pair of Nike shoes that I really like. They fit my feet perfectly. They have like a Velcro strap because who's tying shoes anymore, Natasha? <laughs> uh, but I understand because I can use these shoes, they're comfortable, they're better for my joints that I can be healthier and I can live longer and I can continue continue to have, you know, amazing conversations like we're having and I can give more back than I take. Mm -hmm. Having that realization helps make it a little easier that, oh, I have Nike shoes on my feet. I'm glad that you mentioned that too, because like I said, I'm, I'm very left, very progressive and I hate capitalism. Um, I <laughs> think about it every day. I think it's horrible. Uh -huh. You know, people, even from whoever it is, will say like, how can you say that you hate capitalism when mm -hmm. when you like shopping or like when you get a $7 coffee or when you buy leggings from Lululemon? And I feel like they miss the point. Like if you look at any leftist leaders today, they'll tell you 
that since we are in the system, obviously we want to dismantle capitalism. But since we are in the system, it's important that you, especially if you're from a marginalized community, especially if you're a young person, especially if you're working class, to take advantage of it while you're in it. You can benefit from the system while also trying to change the system. Yeah, like, I mean, if you exist, if you are born, you're going to be involved in capitalism. Because first of all, if you're born, your birth itself literally costs however much. The average cost of having a vaginal birth before health insurance in the U.S. is $15,371. And then from then on, like you need food, you need water, you need all these things. And like, and I'm not the one who said that they should be commodified. I'm not the one who said that any of this should be the way that it is. But since it is that way, and I have to survive to enact the change that I want to enact, I'm going to utilize what I can. That doesn't mean that I that doesn't mean that I don't boycott things. Like if we talk about Israel and Palestine for example, I'm a huge supporter of the BDS movement and there are even businesses within the Twin Cities for example that I don't visit because they have done something problematic whether it be something racist or not supporting their unions. Um and I will fully do that, but that's because I can get those things from somewhere else. Like I don't need to get uh, Sabra hummus because there are other hummuses that exist that don't cause harm to Palestinians, right? Mm -hmm. There are a lot of ways to combat these things. And I think people also need to realize too that when a piece of clothing is more expensive or when coffee is more expensive, it's because that person who's making it is being paid ethically and they're being paid a living wage and they're working, they're working in ethical conditions. So yeah, I'm willing to spend a little bit more if someone is going to be okay because of that. And of course, you're going to find issues with every organization. It doesn't matter who they are. Anything operating within capitalism is problematic. I mean, I truly believe that there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, but that's how we're going to live, right? Like we would die otherwise. And that is capitalism's issue in itself. Like it's not our fault that we need it to live right now. But I hope we get to a point when things aren't the way that they are. Well, and that's kind of a lot of what I think more so our generations are really questioning is the sacrifice of now to help the betterment of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you look at something like student loan debt. I went to school for one year and ended up with $40,000 in debt. And because of having to pay those debt payments, I couldn't do a lot of things in my life. I can't go on this trip or I can't travel or I can't eat this or I have to eat rice and beans every week. Mm -hmm. Now I look at, you know, the conversation with student debt relief and looking back and having to pay, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars, you know, every week, month, year into the thousands and just tons of money. And I look at student debt relief as someone who's paid off just about all my loans. And I say, heck yeah, I'm for it mm -hmm. because I don't want anyone to have that same experience that I had or even looking at the minimum wage. You know, I remember my first job was like 875. That fucking sucked <laughs> to get paid that and to have to work my ass off. And I don't want anyone else to have to experience that. I'm willing to make that sacrifice of experiencing that and trying to make it better for the next generation. And I think that's the primary purpose of what humanity stands for is making life easier for the next generation, for that next person in line. You know, I don't think life will ever be this perfect utopia, but just being able to make it just even like a fraction of a percent better for that next person, I'm willing to sacrifice a bit and give up some of what I have so that that person can have 
just even a tiny small sliver of a better life. Exactly. And and to to add on, I don't even look at that as a socialist or Marxist ideology. I just look at that as being a good human. I mean, yeah. Like it's honestly again so peculiar to think about the fact that everything that I want, everything for which I'm advocating is just what a decent human being should want. The fact that people think all these different issues are so radical is the product of, you know, all of these systemic things. If we go back to critical race theory, if we go back to capitalism and how that's also based in and associated with racism um, and sexism and all these different things. And just having that individual individualistic mindset, I feel like in my personality, like even even from the moment I was born, I just don't think I have that in me a lot of people even if they thought that way at first don't have that in them now as well a lot of people our age a lot of people young people that's why it frustrates me because once you get into the workforce um you work with a lot of people who even millennials or people who are older than that who don't who just don't get it like yeah sure you had an unpaid internship but that doesn't mean that the next person should have one i had to walk home from school up a hill both ways in the freezing rain and freezing cold it's like all right yeah i get that but that doesn't mean the next person has to yeah the issue with internships being unpaid goes exactly back to racism it goes back to critical race theory like who does that benefit right it benefits primarily white people primarily white men because people of color because of the disadvantages that they've been dealt can't have an internship like that because they have to work to earn money to live because they're not given again the same jobs the same benefits that someone else would have well and especially especially white americans in the u.s have more generational wealth than say yeah. a, a black american family in the u.s because of you know i've talked about this in our conversation with dr michael bc rivera before lincoln's death he had planned to give a bunch of land to freed slaves but then the next president johnson i believe i'm blanking on the next president the 17th president yeah johnson but he took away those lands and so white individuals were able to build this wealth through real estate that those same black individuals didn't have the chance to build. So they're behind in the race. I love to use the example of we're going to the same race or we're racing in the same category of races. I'm not too much in the tracks. So I don't know the different categories, but we're going to race in the same race. I just happened to have a really hearty breakfast. You didn't because you had to work two shifts the night before, even though everything in that situation on the outside looks like we're even, there's not exactly it's it's really tough i think we're in that time where a lot of folks like we still have the boomers we still have people even before that time and then we have young people and we're coming to like this point when we're like butting heads when we're butting heads all this ties into another point that is a bit related as we're talking about education within schools what worries me more is what kids are conditioned to knowing at home. Mm -hmm. Someone isn't going to choose a class on white fragility or on issues with capitalism or whatever if they are against that from the get-go. I mean, I see people in my hometown, in, in Rochester, people who live on my street who are Trump supporters. And then I also see that they have like some really little kids. And I'm like, what are they telling them? It worries me a lot because I don't know what they're saying behind closed doors. 
who knows? Like they could be saying really racist things. But don't you see that? But can't or can't you see that? Maybe those same Trump people look across the street to the other side and say, well, what kind of ideals are they fitting in their head? Like, you know, the the common Marxist, communistic, yeah. socialistic ideals, you know. So I think both sides are kind of I think you had a very beautiful point. Both sides are kind of wondering what's being said behind closed doors mm-hmm. and then what's being taught in public and how is that teaching being perceived once they get home? That's a really good point. And I also think that. People get really caught up in labels like we've been talking about with even with social media and such. Someone slaps communism onto something and then suddenly like everyone just can't wrap their heads around it and like doesn't <laughs> even know what it is. We're back to the Cold it, War and fearful of communism and the Red Scare. Yeah. Which it's like, okay, I didn't realize that, again, like why is it radical for everyone to have health care? Like why is it radical for racism to not exist? Or why is it radical for women to be in charge of their own bodies or anyone with a vagina, I should say. It's really frustrating to think that because, you know, I can only control what I say behind my closed doors. But what I'm but I feel as though, you know, what I say isn't tearing anyone down or any community down. It's more so just wanting every community to be treated with respect, with equity and love versus other folks and honestly, I'm not even saying this specifically with conservatives, but I think a lot of people have really ill, horrible wishes towards certain communities. And yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't say a lot of people. I think we tend to give generalizations to either party that are fair at some points, unfair in other points. We don't know what's being said behind closed doors, so I don't think it's correct to kind of generalize what we think is being said. I I honestly believe that you know, there are certain, like we talked about in the first story, there are certain aspects of politics that are important to the ideals of just how you live your life. Mm -hmm. But I don't necessarily think politics are as big of a representation of who someone is than what we believe it might be or what it's seen as in the media. You know, there's so much more to a person than, you know, how they may vote every November or hopefully every two years. People remember there's other elections other than just the presidential election. But we get so hyper focused on that, that we create this villain in our head that's not necessarily there. Mm -hmm. And that's something I learned when, you know, I was traveling and kind of doing a road trip around the U.S. and just talking to people from every walk of life is holy shit. These people are so similar to one another, but it's that one, two, three percent that's different that we hyper focus on and we create a villain from that person. And rightfully so, there are villains mm. from either side that believe in, you know, horrible things and believe in, you know, kind of what you're saying on, you know, hateful things and things that put down people in society. But the majority of people are good people and just want the best for their community from their society. But that road to get there is just different. And so it's very dangerous to create those generalizations because that's how we create more divide is by saying you're a villain because you believe something different than me. I think you have good points. I I will say like I do correct myself from before. I don't mean like a lot of people like the majority of people of course. Yeah. And yeah I no. mean I think too I am definitely someone who likes to believe the best in everyone and so it really hurts like it pains me when I see such horrible things happening right and so sometimes it's kind of like fighting that line between being optimistic and being realistic Mm -hmm. and sometimes being realistic is can also be cynical with that being said 
people also need to remember that you wanting the well-being for your community or someone else wanting the well-being for their community doesn't come at the expense of the well-being of your community. Yes. I mm-hmm. think we do need to just have more of a cooperative society and like everyone needs to understand that we all should want the well-being of everyone. Again, it's like why does my well-being have to come at the expense of someone else's or vice versa? Mm-hmm. That's what people miss and I think people miss that because their minds operate within the system that we currently have and it's important to again, step outside of that system. Um, I mean, I even struggled with this in the political science classes that I took in college. I majored in political science and it really frustrated me because I felt like I couldn't participate in the discussions because they all were within the constraints of the system that we currently have, like this world system, the capitalist system, the governmental system, whatever you want to say, it was always within that. And I was always thinking, about the whys like but why is it that way like why can't we be doing this you know why are things the way that they are and i don't think people really look at things from that perspective um as much as they should and so then it makes me feel misunderstood to be honest like yeah and i think that's you know kind of the ideals of what critical race theory is is just questioning the why you know these are you know ideas that go back to all the way to like wed du bois you know these are ideals that just haven't popped up overnight and i think a lot of people think it has because you know especially being in an audio space words matter mm-hmm. if you ask 10 people the definition of critical race theory you would get 10 different definitions you know i've always said that that's why something like all lives matter exists because everyone has a different interpretation of what black lives matter means you know there's this general idea of what it means but once you can start poking holes in one of those 10 people's beliefs then that other side that opposing side is going to say all right, this is how I get in, not necessarily attack you, but debate you on what you believe because you're not in this, not necessarily groupthink, but you're not in this well-structured idea of what you're fighting for. And that's become a real issue in today's politics and activism is you have thousands of people that are going out and you have a thousand different people that have a different idea of what that protest means. I think it's good to get out and, you know, share your voice. When you start having so many different beliefs of what an idea can be, you have the opposing side that able is able to poke holes in all these little things because the opportunity is there. And the opposing side, not even I'm not even talking politics or, you know, left or right, just the opposing side of any situation is looking for an opportunity to get their word in and say, well, oh, you believe this. You know, I think a common thing with something like the Black Lives Matter movement is, uh, and I think Terry Crews has talked about this, but why aren't you caring about the kids that are dying in the inner cities of Chicago? Well, that's not really the ideals of what the original idea of Black Lives Matter was about, but somebody from the opposing side can say, well, this is why all lives should matter. Words matter. The definition of how we understand those words matter. And I think that's really getting lost these days. And that's why there's so many you know, opposing people coming up to say, we shouldn't be teaching critical race theory when critical race theory is really just questioning the why behind how we got here in history. Part of me wishes that we could create some kind of like communal activism, organizing political dictionary so that everyone was just on the same page. <laughs> yes. Because I feel like, I mean, even with myself, every day I'm learning something new about a certain term, about like why a certain term is problematic or what it actually means and why I shouldn't be using it or why I should be using it. If we go back to whether it be um, kids being killed in inner city Chicago or whether it be whatever else it is. And a lot of times people will try to 
not necessarily with that example, but people will try to deflect from Black Lives Matter by saying like, okay, what about, you know, black on black crime? Or what about yes. um, mm-hmm. what happens like when someone robs a store or assaults you or whatever it is. But people, again, it goes back to critical race theory because it's all systemic, right? Like the reason why you see people looting, the reason why you see people doing what you would never even imagine doing is because they need to survive because of the history of what their community has faced. It's because like slavery, segregation, racism, like all of these things existed to put them at a disadvantage. You can't distract from that point. Like it's like it almost further reinforces uh, why we're fighting for what we're fighting for. It's hard to see because you can't redo the past and you can't redo hundreds of years of suffering. But I feel like people need to understand like the reason why things are the way they are now is because of well, Susanna, are you ready? Uh, thank you for sharing them on the show. Are you ready to jump into our final news story of the episode? Sure. All right. I'll probably get some PETA hate, but hey. All right. This is from Popular Science Science, written by Elena Spivak, October 12th, 2021. These worms produce milk, but only when they kick the bucket. In a world of myriad milks from cow to oat, we now have worm milk. But don't get your hopes up, hipsters. This isn't a dairy substitute for human consumption, but rather a substance that worms can secrete to their offspring in an act of reproductive death. For years, researchers have observed worms, more specifically C. elegans, a one millimeter transparent roundworm, produce this quote-unquote goo and perish. But now they kind of understand why. It's milk. Well, it used to be the worm's intestines. Further, this discovery has connections to past research on C. elegans about increasing their lifespan. The study, C. elegans feed yolk to their young in a form of primitive lactation, examines this self-destructive lactation-like process. The researchers, all from University College London's Institute of Healthy Aging, studied how the known process of C. elegans venting of their own intestines through the vulva is associated with chemical pathways that control the aging process. Karina Kern, one of these studies' authors, stated, The real interesting side of it is that milk is being produced at a cost. In case you didn't know, worms are hermaphrodites, meaning they possess both male and female anatomy. So a worm can fertilize itself, but it will run out of sperm before it runs out of eggs. Once it runs out of sperm, it expels its remaining unfertilized eggs and self-destructs since it's no longer able to reproduce. One of the most interesting aspects of the study is the implication with aging. Karina Kern says that starting in the 1980s, researchers in aging studies discovered that suppressing the insulin pathways in C. elegans increased the worm's lifespan up to tenfold. They found that the gene happens to also control this reproductive death. So, when the gene for creating this milk yolk is switched off, the parent worm doesn't produce it and therefore doesn't perish immediately after. When switching off this secretion, the offspring they don't really suffer either. The milk is more like a last-ditch effort when food is limited. Researchers found that C. elegans are healthier and live longer with this pathway suppressed, considering they are obviously unable to avoid their guts and die. So the connection of interest is how other pathways, potentially in humans, could stop gruesome biological processes and increase lifespans. While human parents don't literally give up their lives for their offspring, a similar thing occurs during breastfeeding. While a parent breastfeeds, 
Their bones lose calcium as the baby receives it through breast milk, which temporarily weakens the bones. However, this transient calcium loss is eventually restored, unlike the, obviously, <laughs> the intestines of C. elegans, and is sometimes restored to higher levels than before. Worm milk will not be coming to a supermarket or cafe or coffee shop near you, but further research of it could eventually tell us more about human aging and how to increase the human lifespan. So as I was talking about earlier, Susanna, there was this report released by the Norwegian government uh, back a handful of years that asked the question, do worms and lobsters and crabs feel pain? The Norwegian government was thinking about banning live worms from bait and fishing, but through their report found that they believe worms do not feel pain, but are instead reacting to just the external stimuli when they wriggle around when hooked. And the conclusion was based on the ideas that, as I mentioned earlier, that worms lack these certain regions of the brain that we typically associate with pain as humans. And so to me, this idea goes into the idea of the possum. Does the possum understand death and dying and what does that mean? Or does the possum understand that playing dead, quote unquote, means they're more likely to survive than not? I mean, uh, possums that still play dead are still attacked, but it's more likely that they're not. And to that, I guess my question is, and maybe this continues a bit from our first conversation on human exceptionalism, is it unfair to judge or study how an animal exists and behaves in our world by the constructs humans have already established? You know, I kind of know we've already talked about this, but I want to expand further on just your thoughts on having those constructs that are based in what humans believe. I, I have kind of mixed feelings about that question because a lot of what I've been doing has to do, has has been precisely the, the the project of you know taking these characteristics that we take that we take to be uniquely human and then studying to what extent they are present in other animals mm -hmm. and I think that that it's important to do this because of what I said before because of these stories that we tell ourselves about how special we are and how we use these to ground you know our right to exploit the natural world as much as we want so I think it's important to address this question but. I also think it's kind of disrespectful to animals to only study them uh, to see how much they are like us. Mm -hmm. I think that part of uh, what it means to gain full respect um, for animals is to actually appreciate them for what they actually are, regardless of whether they are like us at, at all or not. That's also something that I'm very interested in. And I'm, as I was telling you before, some of what I've been doing recently has been thinking about how to make um, the study of animal cognition less anthropocentric. Because so many of the questions that are asked in animal cognition and so many of the experimental paradigms are done from a human point of view and uh, with the human mind being used kind of as a baseline. For instance, an example that, that illustrates this really well, which I always usually resort to, is the, the example of the mirror self-recognition test. This test was originally proposed as a test for self-awareness. I don't know if you, you're familiar with how te the test works. Yep. Basically, an animal is first made familiar with um, a mirror, then they are anesthetized, and they will receive a mark on their forehead. They will get a red mark. And then when they wake up, um, their behavior is observed to see if they interact with the mark at all. And if they do, then this purportedly shows us something about their self-awareness. Now, I think that this experiment is like a paradigmatic anthropocentric experiment because we're saying like, well, we're not only using 
vision as the main sense through which you could mm-hmm. gain uh, a perception of your of your own self. Uh, right. This is a test that ignores um, olfaction, for instance, which may be much more important to other animals in vision. Um, but it also presupposes that animals are going to care if they have a mark on their forehead, <laughs> which is something that for us, it's even hard to understand. Why would an animal not care? Like mm-hmm. for us, like our appearance, the way we look, having something weird on your face, that's like, you know, something we care about a lot. But I, I think that that that's, doesn't necessarily have to uh, extrapolate to other species, maybe to... Uh, for other animals, you know, having some debris on your on your face mm-hmm. or on on your um, body is like no big deal. But if your coat smells weird, that's like, oh, my God, what is going on? So I think that experimental paradigms need to be updated to become less anthropocentric. But also the, the very questions that we ask need to be less anthropocentric. I think it's important to ask ourselves how much are other animals like humans, but also maybe how much are humans like other animals or how much are different species of animals like each other or what kind of capacities do animals have on their own and they may have nothing to do with what we are capable of. Yeah, a recent conversation I just had with Joe, we talked about animal intelligence and a lot of the time, even speaking to the mirror test, you know, a lot of the time we base animal intelligence off of say, all right, a chimpanzee has an intelligence of a three-year-old. You know, that could potentially mean so many different things. You know, if we start really bringing in this idea that a chimpanzee is as smart as a three-year-old, we kind of forget about all the amazing things a chimpanzee is doing separated from humanity and separated from humans as, you know, kind of, as I mentioned before with Jane Goodall kind of doing her research. As you're saying, I think it's a very good point to really understand that animals don't necessarily have the same behaviors. I I know like within like social animals and humans are very social creatures, there are some things that can coexist. But for the most part, say to that test that you mentioned, the mirror test, having a red dot for humans, the concept of image is so much more complex and so much more established into our ethos that is more so human that I would imagine a chimpanzee having a red dot on his head thinking about, oh, I have a red dot on my head. Now the rest of the group is going to disband me. And as you're saying, we're putting these human characteristics and these human ideas onto animals when we're not really taking the time to understand, like, as you said, you know, a lot of animals use hearing or a lot of animals use taste, you know, a lot of animals use sense of smell, you know, specifically with lions and their Jacobson organ and understanding, you know, when another lion, a female lion's in heat, you know, that's specifically through taste, but, you know, humans don't have that. And so why should we try to equate human mating to lion mating when there's just different functions that have them succeed in what they're doing. And we've evolved and succeeded both together, yes, but also separately. I I, I really um, hate that that kind of comparison with a chimpanzee being like a three-year-old. I think that's just like infantilizing the chimp and also, yeah, leaving aside all these other things that chimps can do that a human would, would never be able to do. And I do understand that, you know, as from like a content creator and trying to get clicks, it's very easy to say, all right, a raven or a crow can drop a walnut in a street and they understand that a car will crush it and it'll make it easier to eat. And so they have this intelligence of a four-year-old. And so I understand from just like a marketing perspective how it's easy to get clicks. But as you're saying, it's very damaging to the study of animal rights and animal personhood and making this 
difference between human exceptionalism. Yeah, and it also kind of presupposes that that intelligence is something you know that that humans have to one hundred percent, and then other animals can have to to a certain degree, rather than you know, how intelligence actually is, which is the fact that people who work in comparative psychology, they usually never use the term intelligence because it's just so ambiguous. And it assumes that exactly that you can rank all animals on a single scale, mm-hmm. but you absolutely can't. So some animals are going to be better at some kinds of tasks and others are going to be better at other kinds of tasks. And animals can also out- outperform us in a lot of tasks, but we usually don't Say, you know, we are like a one month old, whatever. <laughs> and because- no, that's like a very human thing to to put things on a scale, to compare things. It's like we're always constantly thinking, even like within like the podcasting sphere, I'm always like, all right, what am I doing that the other podcast isn't doing? Or what are they doing that I'm not doing? And that's a very human thing. And it's sometimes can be very dangerous when it comes to scientific studies. Yeah, I think we need to to really realize that it it is very damaging to animals to to constantly be bringing up these scales and and constantly come up with these narratives where humans are always at the top. And it's it's definitely something that we need to change because we just need to change our attitude towards nature. We I mean, we have no other choice at this <laughs> day and age, right? Yeah, we got one earth and I kind of want to like continue on on these you know limits that humans tend to place on how we understand how animals understand and kind of to that previous example of i said how worms react to stimuli in the norwegian government can you explain a bit about the concept you mentioned in your article tactful humans how the study of touch can inform the animal morality debate and these three main functions of touch this discriminative function this affiliative function and this vigilance 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 function yeah that paper, um, what we try to do is we kind of vindicate the sense of touch because for reasons that we already mentioned, the sense of touch tends to be neglected in the study of animal cognition, animal behavior in general. Mm-hmm. Because humans are are visual animals and auditory animals above, or that's how we tend to think of ourselves and we usually don't pay that much attention to touch even though it's incredibly important. But we usually just don't pay much attention to it. And so Maria Botero, she's this um, philosopher who wrote about the importance of touch for joint attention, because joint attention has usually been operationalized in terms of vision. So the idea is that our showing joint attention where we when we are both looking at the same the same object, mm-hmm. right? When we when we are like triangulating on an object visually. And she was studying chimpanzees at Gombe and she noticed how chimpanzee mothers very rarely actually look into their, the eyes of their um, offspring. Um, however, they do tend to carry them with them all day and they're always touching each other. Mm-hmm. And she argued that through this touch, constant touch interaction, there can, um, they can actually develop forms of joint attention that have to do with the fact that the, the baby has like a sense of how her her mother is reacting to the world because she can feel it. She can feel when her mother is tense and when she's relaxed and so on. Mm-hmm. My co-author, Birte Frage, and me, we, we were really interested in, in this idea. And we thought about how we could apply it to the, the topic of animal morality because touch seems to be so important uh, for morality. There are so many norms governing how we are 
allowed to touch each other when and where and in what manner um and there's all like all these debates around consent and so on a lot of it has to do about how to navigate touch this is not something we said in the paper but something that we both believe that touch seems to be in a way intrinsically moral when we touch each other right well to like your example of the chimpanzee mother like a lot of the times as humans you know that mother touch you know the baby on the shoulder is so important to connection yes absolutely right so so we talk about the the three functions of touch and how these these show how touch may be important for morality so the first one is the discriminative function which is the idea that uh, through touch, you can gain information about the sensory qualities of an object, right? So if I, gla- I grab this glass, um, I can tell that it's cold, um, that it's hard, etc. And I can, I can tell this with my eyes closed. I don't need vision to tell that. I can just sense it through touch. So that's a discriminative function. And this is important for morality because oftentimes animals are going to be able to gain information about the animals surrounding them just through touch. So, for instance, an animal who is grooming another animal might be able to sense purely through touch when the other one just doesn't want this interaction to go on any longer, is annoyed by it, whatever. They can just sense, sense it through touch. Or through touch, an animal can also sense, for instance, when another has died. I think the sense of touch here is so important because bodies suddenly become completely limp, lifeless, cold, unresponsive. Like the way they feel to touch is going to be so radically different from how a live body feels, right? So that's a discriminative function. And then we have the affective function, function, which is the fact that touch, especially in social mammals, is used to express certain emo- emotions of care. And this is important developmentally. We know that it's very important for um, a social mammal to develop correctly, emotionally, um, that that she has access to her mother's touch. Mm-hmm. The, the mother's touch is just very, very important for development. But also the effective function of touch is important because through it, we can express so many moral emotions, things like empathy, you can express it through touch or um, resentment. You can also express it through avoiding someone's touch uh, or gratitude. You can express it again through affiliative touch. So, yeah, affective touch is also very important. And then the last one is the vigilance function of touch, which relates to the idea that we can touch with much much more than just our hands. We usually think of um, the sense of touch as something that pertains to our hands, but actually we can touch with the back of our heads, our belly buttons, you know, we can touch with every single part of our bodies. Hmm. Philip Mattens has argued that the fact that we can touch with all parts of our bodies shows us that the basal function of touch is not discrimination, but rather vigilance. So the idea is that touch is a sense that watches over our bodies. It tells us when something is touching us, which could be a potential threat to our bodily integrity. It's very important for us to know when we are being touched. And that's why we, we can't just feel with our hands, but we can also feel with any other part of our bodies because we need to know when, you know, there's something there that could be a threat. And we argue that this is very important for morality because it points to the fact that bodies are vulnerable and that when you allow another being to touch you, you are putting yourself in a vulnerable position. And how animals navigate this increase in vulnerability that comes through touch 
can show us a lot about their moral capacities. For instance, their capacity to trust in another. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we see in some animals that they have these trust games that have to do with touching vulnerable parts of the bodies. So chimpanzees, for instance, will cup each other's testicles as a way of like forming um, alliances or, or bonding with each other. Orcas will bite on each other's tongues. Some capuchin monkeys will poke each other's eyes. So these are all forms of what's called vulnerable touch behavior, where animals are putting themselves in vulnerable positions as a way of fostering trust. Yeah, it was so... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that we also sometimes see animals... Um, hurting each other on purpose. Um, and we argue that this is also another manifestation of morality, it could be a manifestation of negative moral emotions, emotions like cruelty um, or schadenfreude, which animals could also be capable of. Yeah, it was so interesting when I came across, you know, this article and read about it, because it's something like you were saying earlier, it's you never really think about touch as a sense, but touch is such a main sense to just living and understanding and being tactical and, you know, all these different things. So I appreciate you being able to explain more about that. Even I was, as you were saying, you know, kind of there at the end, I was thinking about how, you know, I used to work with uh, a dog and training dogs and even to get the trust of a dog, you know, it's touching on the head, touching on, you know, the stomach, touching around the crotch area. And it's so important that, you know, you feel comfortable through touch, and then you can kind of use those other senses to really get a great understanding of what the heck is this thing going on? Right, right. So I think that touch is just very important in that sense, because it it necessarily creates this vulnerability. Mm -hmm. We see animals just navigating this vulnerability, social animals who just have to touch each other when they groom each other, when they're mate, when they mate, when they play, and just things like Animals that control the strength with which um, they bite during play, yes. the, the strength with uh, with which they carry their offspring in their mouths. Uh, we see this self-handicapping in play behavior in animals where animals will actually play to a, a lower strength than, that, than they're actually capable of. They will act as though they are weaker than they actually are. Mm -hmm. And... Yeah, so I think that this these are all like manifestations of these like minimal forms of morality that we find in other animals. And in the end, morality has to do with just regulating life in a social group. And you need these kinds of um, emotions to regulate life in a, in a social group. That's why it's not really that surprising to find morality elsewhere as, as soon as you kind of deintellectualize it and strip it away of all this like ethical theory that we sometimes think that morality is about. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a very interesting concept. I want to think more about that as well uh, once we get off this conversation, because even thinking to humans, like within different cultures, touch is such a different ball game. You know, here in the U.S., especially like in the Midwest, touch is a very welcoming and warm thing. But if you go on the coast, it's a very cold thing. And I know within Spain, it's like a lot of touching, a lot of touching on the face, a lot of kissing. Yeah. And so it completely creates these different cultures that we necessarily don't think about, but it helps identify, all right, if I know I'm going to somebody's house and they're a hugger, I know they're from the Midwest. Yeah, exactly. I, I really experienced this when I was doing my postdoc in Vienna. I moved from Madrid to Vienna and I was mostly hanging out with Germans there. And Germans have a very different attitude to touch. Mm -hmm. Because I knew, I knew like 
explicitly that they don't kiss each other. This was like <laughs> something that I knew, but I didn't yeah. realize how much Spanish people actually touch each other during conversations, just like regular conversations will just like grab each other's hand or, or, or arm or, or like pat each other on the back, whatever. We're constantly touching each other and it's normal. And you would, I would never do it with a German, but I, it, it was kind of very salient to me mm-hmm. how I, refrain from this kind of behavior because all of a sudden it felt super inappropriate. And I also experienced that a lot with, with my, my friends' babies there in, in Austria, because in Spain, and this is something that is probably quite problematic, but it's very normal for children to be touched and to seek out touch. They, they, they like to hug you and they like to kiss you. And it's, it's just very normal. And, um, there, I, I I didn't touch my friend's um, kids because it was kind of, you know, it's, it, it wasn't okay to do yeah. it. Um, and it was super weird for me because, uh, like, I had a friend whose kid I, I knew since he was born and I was there for five years. And on the day I left, he gave me a hug for the first time. And it was, like, super heartwarming because <laughs> I had never, ever mm-hmm. been, like, in touch with this with this kid. And then I come to Spain and I, and I meet my friend's baby who is like three months old and she's asking to for me to hold her like she spontaneously is asking me so it's like a completely different culture surrounding touch what's well, also interesting how that can relate to say love like when you think of like love languages italian spanish and you think of colder languages like russian german i mean it plays a big factor into just the aspect of touch and love and warmness and coldness and all these yeah. different factors that you never really think about yeah i think i think it it did kind it does kind of impact how um welcoming a culture seems to me um uh, but at the same time I also, to a certain degree, appreciate those, um, the more respectful approach of the Germans. So I think it's actually really good that kids there are not forced to be hugged and kissed and whatever. And, and it's only through the like explicit consent of the kid that you are allowed to do that. I think that's actually better. And I also like coming back to Spain now. Here, it's super commonplace to give someone two kisses, even if they're a complete stranger, just when you're introduced to someone for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I realize now how uncomfortable that makes me and how much I actually do not <laughs> like it. So, yeah, it's 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 kind of weird because to a certain degree, I missed it when I was outside. But then coming back, I also see that there are problems to it. <laughs> Especially after a global pandemic. Yeah, you I mean, have have of course, <laughs> now it's even more problematic. I, I actually really hoped that the pandemic would phase out the, the whole kissing thing in Spain. But no, it's very much alive, unfortunately. <laughs> It does make you think about things. I was even thinking about like bowling and how you're kind of eating food and bowling and sharing these balls. But anyway. All right, Jake, are you ready to jump into our final news story of the episode? Yeah, let's chat. This is from Hypebot Music Business, February 10th, 2021. Spotify patents tech to monitor speech and for emotion. So just a disclaimer before we get into this conversation, as mentioned in a previous episode with Empress, Water Cooler Talk has had a relationship with Spotify. However... As you know, I speak freely, I'm able to do that, and uh, without any bias about the platform, so no blind biases there. In the doesn't-seem-creepy-at-all department, streaming's current king, Spotify, 
receive approval for a patent detailing the use of microphones to determine listeners' personality traits. Many people believe big tech companies are already spying on their users' behavior to create smarter algorithms that help serve better targeted ads. Have you ever opened Instagram or Facebook? and saw an advertisement for something you recently discussed in conversation? While the claim has yet to be officially proven, some companies like Facebook, Amazon, and Google have stated that their devices do listen for certain words. But it has become eerie to see how well the algorithms currently in use understand your wants and needs. Based on Spotify's latest patent approval, it's not hard to see the connection. The patent entitled Identification of Taste Attributes from an Audio Signal details how Spotify could use microphones and its attached technology to get even deeper into its users' heads by using speech recognition to determine the user's, quote, emotional state, gender, age, or accent. The proposed tech would use its inferences about users to make listening recommendations. If it thinks you're angry, it may suggest Olivia Rodrigo's latest album, Sour. Or if you just got dumped, maybe some Olivia Rodrigo <laughs> will soothe and empower your broken heart. It's a good album. I don't know if you've listened to it yet, Jake. The company also intends to throw in environmental sounds to the mix, like vehicles on a street, other people talking, birds chirping, printers printing, and so on, allowing for context-based recommendations. For example, if the algorithm believes you're in Los Angeles, it will recommend songs and artists that people visiting the West Coast typically enjoy. Many questions surrounding the patent have no clear answers, and it's not likely that Spotify will reveal more about its plans until the tech is ready. If such a product actually exists in the first place. Patents are often a legal cover for ideas that a company considers, but may ultimately never use. But if the day comes when Spotify introduces a new listening tool based off of the proposed patent, you can be certain some users will be upset. People want to know when the app is listening, and they want the ability to opt out of sharing their life with a tech giant. But it's important to remember, and anyone who's hesitant about getting a vaccine because they think there's a microchip in it should listen up. Most of us already share more data with tech giants like Spotify than we realize. Our phones know where we are, what we look for, who we speak to, what we listen to, what movies we plan to watch, and what we're hoping to purchase. Similar information is known by countless websites that we visit, and many share their data with others to help build smarter algorithms to keep us hooked on their products. Because remember, this is very key. If a product is free, you are the product. You can call it insidious, or you can call it smart business. Either way, our data isn't really ours anymore. So, Jake, I don't know your thoughts on this, but this is like a moral conundrum I've had like the past decade or so, is giving my information to you know tech sites like this to make my experience online better. Because I enjoy going on my phone, on YouTube, we talked about YouTube, and being recommended videos I want to watch. I don't want to be recommended videos that I don't care to watch. And so it makes my online experience better, but it's also concerning to be like, oh, I just talked about buying a uh, dehumidifier and now I'm getting recommended dehumidifiers on Instagram. Like that's concerning to me, but is it really worth it? Yeah, no, I mean, what you're tapping into is something that has captivated research too for the last 10, 20 years. And even gain the term the privacy paradox, where it's this idea that people report being very concerned about sharing their data and people having access to their data, while at the same time doing very little, if anything, to control it. You know, there was a study, this is back from, gosh, the early 2000s, but, you know, one in 10, 20 to 30 year olds had lost a job 
or been rejected a job opportunity because of something they posted online. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, another study from around that time, they surveyed people about, you know, how concerned would you be if your uh, sexual orientation or political status was disclosed openly to people? Of the people who were marked the most concerned about sharing this information, about 50% of them already shared that information online via their Facebook. So we have this weird sense where we want to maintain privacy, yet at the same time, our behaviors don't really demonstrate that and hence this privacy paradox. Well, I can see that as an aspect of not under truly understanding the reach of social media, because I, I think I can strongly say that in the beginning, when Facebook came out, when MySpace and, you know, you got friended by Tom, we didn't really understand the total scope of what this information could be used for. So we were more likely to share our information because, oh, I'm just sharing this information that only my friends or family can see. But now we're in a place where companies are using that information, they're selling it to who knows who, and now that information is everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely early on, I think we were probably naive with how our data would be used. But I mean, even to this day, there was this, you know, the big privacy revival where all these sites had to update their privacy policies. And that essentially just meant that you had to click an extra button that said, accept all cookies when you come on the page. And that's what everybody did, right? I mean, back around 2015, they did another study where people were essentially willing to sell their internet browsing history for the price of a Big Mac. It's, again, this weird difference in valuation between this kind of like felt need to be have our privacy about our data and information and yet behavior that doesn't quite match up with it. And there's there's some interesting ideas related to our evolutionary history about why this might be. Well, yeah, I remember uh, recently Facebook that had like I think half a million users phone numbers leaked. It was actually 533 million users data leaked. You ask people about that. They either have no idea or they don't care. Mm-hmm. All right, is this what we're giving up to be able to use a site like Facebook, to use Instagram, which owned by the same company, uh, to use YouTube? And to me, is it worth it? I I don't know. It's, it's such a tough question. Like you were saying, you know, we know the effects of what this can do, but we also have the positive effects of what these sites are giving us. If I'm sad and Spotify can give me a you know sad playlist that makes me feel you know, a little more comfortable being sad. I mean, is that worth it? Yeah, it all depends on the consequences, right? If I can, if Instagram can send me an ad for a new pair of shoes that I want, and so I don't have to spend an hour searching online to find the right pair of shoes, that's great. But if a health insurance company can use my 23andMe data to determine how much they should charge me on a premium, well, less great. It all depends on how that data is being used. And I think one of the biggest issues today is that it's just a complete black box for most of us. We know it's being used in Mm -hmm. some way, but aren't fully sure how. Well, and I think it also matters kind of to a point on who you are. I don't know about you, but I'm not like mega famous. So I don't, you know, I have less to risk <laughs> mm-hmm. by having my information out there. And I think that matters. But I think what you brought up about the 23andMe and what health insurances could do with that data, or even across the board, what the government can use with that data, it's scary to really think about all right, I could be put into this box because of what I click on a computer or what websites I click. Truthfully honest, I use incognito mode every time I go on the internet. I know it doesn't do what everyone thinks it does, but I like the aspect of not having my password stored, not uh, having my history stored. I'm not looking at anything crazy, Jake. I just want to throw that out there. (laughs) 
But mm. I like being able to do like research. I'll use like DuckDuckGo or you know another one of these sites that I feel like I can just have a fresh start every time because when I'm trying to research an episode like this episode, all right, I don't want my perception skewed by what past Adam thought was true. Yeah, that's an an interesting perspective, you know, and I, I think, again, just relates to how that data is being used. If it's going to be feeding you a specific narrative, then obviously we don't, people who are high in like, truth seeking, uh, aren't going to want that. But I mean, Google already will shape your recommendation mm-hmm. based on whether you type are vaccines good or are vaccines bad. Irrespective of your personal history, there's going to be some built-in biases into the search engine. Now it's just kind of a matter of figuring out, okay, well, what, I mean, Apple, I think is a really interesting case study where they've really been pushing privacy recently. It doesn't come with a ton of benefits for them. I was chatting with the next VP of marketing there who was part of this privacy pushing. It's like, you know, for us, it really wasn't about monetization. It was about what is good for our consumers. If I mm-hmm. were a consumer of my phone, what would I want? It, again, it just comes down to how you want your data used. And I, we just need better transparency in how it's being used because people tend to feel a little more comfortable with their data being used for recommendations for purchases or products they might want less so to get kind of what you were talking about, maybe political information or research information. Again, just having a better idea of where it's going and how it's being used could be helpful. But but don't you almost think the transparency is there, but it's often hidden in these terms and agreements that are you know, 300 pages long. And it's like mm-hmm. a company can say, we're being transparent, mm-hmm. but also it's buried in, I mean, as we talked about in our last episode, you know, sometimes research studies and papers are a bit confusing to the everyday person. Mm-hmm. So are the terms and agreements of uh, agreeing to something. Just It's much easier just to scroll down to the bottom of the page and say, I agree. Yeah, I, I, you're right that it's there. I wouldn't call it transparent. It's, you know, even if it's a hidden hidden (laughs) transparency. (laughs) Yes, it's transparent behind the fully bricked wall. Yeah. And so, again, yeah, we just we we, this idea of privacy and this privacy paradox kind of stems from some of our evolutionary roots or so they think uh, regarding privacy. Social networks, social groups became very important for our survival in the wild that we needed to connect with others. And as we became more successful, we needed bigger groups. So at first, privacy was really just kind of territorial. What's my area that I get to call out for mine or kind of like person privacy, like don't come and touch me, don't come within my personal space. But as we grew into these more complex societies, a new form of privacy emerged and that is like reputational privacy. So information about you and what you've done because reputation became very important for whether you were included in the clan or not included in the clan. I mean, you can look at chimpanzees. And so when chimpanzees get scared, they'll flash their teeth a little bit bare their teeth. and uh, But chimpanzees are a very kind of hierarchical dominance uh, society that they live within. And so rather than reveal a chimp, male chimp, rather than reveal that he was scared, he'll actually turn his back to shield the fact that his teeth are bared and will wait until his lips have come down to reface the person. So that's kind of a very rudimentary level of this kind of reputational privacy. And that's what we were working with back in those evolutionary days. You know, we were very guarded about our reputational privacy. But what happened is we still have these kind of evolutionary drives, but we're in an environment where that is just like a totally different ball game. Right now, everything is accessible out there. There was a a fun study where they found that 
just 300 likes on Facebook of different pages and things, the algorithm could predict you better than your own wife. And so, you know, we have all this data out there. And so it's this conflict between our evolutionary desire for that reputational privacy and a world where it's just impossible to control that. Again, trying to find that balance is difficult. It's like, you know, growing up evolutionarily, we had a desire for sugar and fat because they were scarce. And now they're all over the place and we just consume it like crazy, apparently to the point where, you know, we'd buy a Big Mac to give up all of our reputational privacy. It's just kind of a maladaptive result of our evolutionary past, but it's still important. And so it's a matter of kind of balancing those internal drives with what's practically consequential. I mean, and just this is just your opinion. I'm not looking for the correct answer on this. Mm -hmm. Do you think we'll get to that point where we can find that balance? Or do you think technology will change so much that we'll always just be catching up to what's the next thing? Yeah, you know, I think we hit a milestone with the internet. It's like we hit that plane and now we're just getting faster internet, a little bit more information, but the basic kind of fundamentals of sharing our privacy are out there. So mm -hmm. I don't know how much it'll evolve beyond that rather than just kind of increasing efficiency and accuracy of that information. What we need really is people like you and myself who are concerned about privacy actually being involved in these corporations and online platforms that are able to use or retain that data. And until they have kind of influence or a desire to kind of affect it, then maybe we'll always be a step behind. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, something I've said multiple times when it comes to like these big government programs. It's like, as long as I know where that money is going or where that data is going specifically, I'm fine opting in. Or if it's something like Spotify where they listen to, you know, if I'm crying on my phone and Spotify listens, and like, here's Olivia Rodrigo's new album. I'm not sponsored <laughs> by Olivia Rodrigo. I just want to make it very clear. Um, if I'm able to opt in or opt out of something and they give me very clear definitions, as we talked about words matter, very clear definitions of what this data is being used for. And I'm seeing this a lot more um, with social media sites or just apps that you download in general. They're like, hey, this is what we need to use your camera for. Mm -hmm. We're specifically using your contacts for this reason. And it's like, okay, I'm more willing to trust you if you're just transparent and upfront with me at the beginning, rather than finding out down the line oh, you just sold my information to, you know, hackers across the sea. And now my credit card information is all over the internet. Kind of back to the point you said earlier, there is a responsibility of these big tech companies to not put the onus on the consumer, but instead, hey, you have the resources to make these changes to do something like Apple is doing where they're like, we don't care necessarily about the profits of this, but we're doing this because we think it's the right thing to do. You may not agree with Apple across the board, but if these big tech companies like Spotify, Facebook, Instagram, Google, uh, Twitter, Apple, whatever, if they can be more humble by their power and say, we have a power to make significant change in how we take in data and how we use that data, and they use that power for the betterment of society instead of the betterment of their investors, and I get they have to make money. But at the end of the day, I always look at it as what are you leaving this world as? You know, are you leaving this world as somebody who 
is money hungry and only is you know caring about you or are you leaving this world as someone who cares about the greaterment of society and what it can provide for the future of humanity yeah no i mean that's exactly right there's it's just an asymmetric power balance right now all these companies you know they have our data they have our information they have how we like to click what we're willing to click on and all we have are our little voices being like, please don't, we don't want that, <laughs> you know. Please don't it's, release. I was just trying to see what my butt looked like from another perspective. <laughs> don't release my butt pics. All right. Are you ready to jump into our final news story? Talk some alpha versus beta males. Absolutely. Let's do it. This article is from Greater Good Magazine, Big Ideas, December 10th, 2015. And I believe this story is from Berkeley, where you went to school. That's right. Works perfect. This is titled The Myth of the Alpha male. There are a lot of false dichotomies out there, left brain versus right brain, nature versus nurture, but one really persistent myth that is literally costing human lives, i.e. UC Santa Barbara, is the distinction between alpha and beta males. As the story typically goes, there are two types of men. Alpha males are those at the top of the social status hierarchy who have gained these positions through physical prowess, intimidation, and domination, while beta males are the weak, submissive, subordinate guys who are low status and only get access to partners once women decide to settle down for the nice guy. The theory, which is often based upon observations among social animals such as chimpanzees, began from the work of David Meech who in the early 1960s studied captive wolves and theorized that each pack had an alpha leader and the remaining males of the pack were beta followers. His theory became popular in the 1970s and was picked up by every sleazy pickup artist and marketing firm helping paint a very black and white picture of masculinity. But David Meech was wrong in his study. He even released a follow-up study in 1999 to say so. Wolves don't work in an alpha versus beta society, they work as a family unit with divisions of labor. But as the expression goes, when all you have is a hammer, all you see are nails. When we oppose just two categories of male on the world, we unnecessarily mislead young men into acting in certain predefined ways that aren't actually conductive to attracting and sustaining healthy and enjoyable relationships with women or other partners, or finding success in other areas of life. In one study about the relationship between dominance and attractiveness, researchers presented participants with videotaped and written scenarios depicting two men interacting with each other and varied whether the lead male acted dominant or non-dominant. Across four experiments, the researchers found that the dominant male scenarios were considered more sexually attractive. So, taken at face value, the study seemed to support the sexual attractiveness of the dominant alpha male over the non-dominant beta male. But not so fast. In follow-up studies, researchers isolated various adjectives to pinpoint which descriptors were actually considered sexually attractive. While they found dominance to be considered sexually attractive, aggressive and domineering tendencies did not increase the sexual attractiveness of either males or females. Yes, the dominant male was more sexually attractive, but he was also regarded as less likable and not desirable as a long-term partner to settle down with. As more studies continue to pinpoint attractive descriptors, researchers found that dominant males who were demanding, violent, and self-centered were not considered attractive, whereas the dominant male who was assertive and confident was considered attractive. They stated, men who dominate others because of leadership qualities and other superior abilities and who therefore are able and willing to provide for their families quite possibly will be preferred to potential partners who lack those attributes. Furthermore, more studies were conducted that found that it wasn't dominance alone that was sexually attractive, but rather dominance only increased sexual attraction when the person was already high in agreeableness and altruism. Also, dominance was only attracted to females in the context of male-male competition among rivals and not peers. The quarterback that all the girls go for is the one who dominates the other 
another team on the football field, but is likable and friendly to his teammates during the week before and after a game. In the human species, the attainment of social status and the mating benefits that come along with it can be accomplished through compassion and cooperation just as much, if not more so, as through aggression and intimidation. Many social scholars believe that at least two routes to social status arose through our history, dominance and prestige. The dominance route is paved with intimidation, threats, coercion, and is fueled by hubristic pride, while the prestigious route is paved with the emotional rush of accomplishment, confidence, success, and is fueled by authentic pride. Take the previously mentioned theory of chimpanzees being an example of alpha-beta behavior. Recent research has shown that even among primates, alpha-male status can be achieved not only through size and strength, but through adept sociability and the grooming of others, aka being likable. While it's tempting to decide that dominance is bad and prestige is good when discussing social status, that's a bit too simplistic. Context matters. A CEO of a Fortune 500 company would find himself at the very bottom of the pecking order in the general population of a prison. In the context of a tough, dangerous world, the dominant male is valued, but in the context of a peaceful, warless society, which has been most of human history, the prestigious male is more valued. Dominance is a short-term strategy for success, Prestige is a long-term strategy. Dominance is a quality that can help you conquer, but it lacks the ability to govern what you want. Once a male chimpanzee has fought his way to the top, his reign may be short-lived. There will always be another dominant male to challenge him for the throne. People like the Mongols and the Vikings dominated others, but died off. Prestigious men, like our founding fathers, created a legacy. It is neither the alpha or beta male that is most desired by women. The ideal man is one who is assertive, confident, easygoing, and sensitive, without being aggressive, demanding, dominant, quiet, shy, or submissive. In other words, a prestigious man not a dominant man. A more effective and healthier route for men having difficulty attracting women is not to attempt to cultivate the traits of the stereotypical dominant alpha, but to cultivate the traits of the prestigious man. Develop skills that bring value to society, cultivate a sense of identity, be assertive, but remain kind in that assertiveness. The most attractive male is a blend of these characteristics. Masculinity is not black and white. The true alpha is fuller, deeper, and richer. Crazy, crazy article. Love the article. Thank you for choosing this. Before we get in, I want to get another baseline. How do you view masculinity? Yeah, masculinity just comes down to, I think, it's an identity, right? Like, it's who you identify as. It says that, you know, I am a man. I can have different types of ways of expressing myself, but that's who I feel like I am. It's kind of nebulous. It's hard to tease apart from what we've been told all our lives about what masculinity should be. Um, so you could say like, okay, the definition of masculinity is what we've been told that you have to act this particular way. But honestly, if you feel like a man, that's what you identify with. That's your masculine identity. Yeah, I think that nails it on nails on the head. I still haven't figured out that phrase. You know, if you feel like a man, that's what masculinity is to you. You don't have to be this blue collar coal worker who dives into coal mines and or you don't have to be this guy with giant pecs and you know abs as long as you feel like when you look in the mirror you feel like you're a man that is what masculinity is to you it's different i think you know trying to put masculinity in this one box has caused a lot of issues throughout human history and i think if you go into studies like the one you just talked about, there's probably a lot of nuance there. But when it's reported in more accessible ways, then some of that nuance gets lost. What was interesting to me is that even in the opinions that were uh, expressed by the women in the study, nothing was unanimous, right? Mm, it was yeah, all percentages, point. like 70% of the women in the study expressed this opinion, the rest did not. There is no one expectation that you need to live up to. And then you said also about the context, right? A CEO being dominant in one area and not in another area, right? You can be really good at something that is not considered 
alpha, right? Like you have some kind of hobby that's very nerdy or something like that. And that's totally okay. Usually the problem isn't that. It's the problem is that, you know, if you're not a good person, you're not kind, you're an <laughs> asshole. That That is really the issue, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And that's where that prestige comes in, like compassion and generosity is very important. And just being kind, but not being kind in a way where you're kind of a pushover, but just being kind in a way where you're giving back without expecting anything in return. Absolutely. I actually don't like that idea of taking the characterization of animals in the wild and trying to put them on human society in the first place. We have this society that's telling us like, even if this is what you're inclined to do, maybe we live in a civilization that is about these other rules that we've created to make us prosper. But what was interesting to me, despite the fact that like, I wouldn't want to impose animal behavior, wild animal behavior on humans. A follow-up by Meech in 1999 about how the actual dominant wolves are the parents. They're the ones who are actually taking care of these pups. Honestly, that sounds like a better partner even within human society, right? Like what is somebody looking for in a partner? Somebody who will include them in their lives and help take care of them and potentially kids, you know, down the line and basically share that life with them. So why would you be attracted to somebody who is going to push you around or not respect you. There's this idea within, you know, masculinity that you have to be pretty much the sole provider for your family. I think that causes so much stress because people get in this survival type aspect where I need to make money, I need to make money, I need to make money. And they're willing to step on people's backs to make that money because they think they have to be the sole provider. But really, like the wolves, you know, it's this partnership. It's this family dynamic. By leaning on, you know, that other person or those other people, you have more time to be, I keep going back to it, but you have more time to be kinder to yourself. And by being kinder to yourself, you're a better person in society in general. Yeah. And in fact, there's this weird feedback loop, right? So you see somebody who is acting in that dominant way, right? Aggressive and not kind. And maybe they've acquired some amount of success. It may not even be because of that dominant personality, but for some other reason. But you see that and you emulate it, then in at least one area, you get rewarded for it, right? Maybe in that area, it was good to be dominant, like you're going up the ladder in a company or something like that. And then you assume that that will be the case in all of the areas in your life. And so that's why you have certain certain men, for example, who will gravitate towards that idea that being alpha is the way to go. And that's how the world is, because they had that feedback loop. And that's why these problems are so systemic. You have to take away the idea that being dominant is the only way to success. It gives them a sense of belonging. You know, we're afraid of the unknown. We're afraid of what's in the woods. So we stay in our community. You know, the world makes sense to them in this black and white alpha versus beta and having a tough guy alpha persona helps these individuals feel special. You know, they don't have to confront their insecurities. The same with the beta nice guys. If I can blame the world for all my issues, then I don't have to address those issues. It, it, it just doesn't, it's not a healthy mindset to have to feel like you're insecure. So you have to act a certain way or blame everyone else for issues that you are afraid to address. It's, it's terrifying to go into the woods by yourself, but sometimes you have to. For sure. I think there's a lot of people who are acting poorly because they themselves are not confronting what will really make them happy, what will set them up from success. And then as you said, you know, before about 
when somebody acts out differently than their expectations, there isn't the support system for them. That's also another problem. Okay, cool. I'm going to go away from this alpha beta dichotomy. But in the world that I have lived in, if I'm not supported in doing so, that pushes me back into that dichotomy all over again. That's a very good point. You know, bring back that example of, you know, the black man in the KKK. You know, he was supportive as they transitioned out of that community. You're right. If you don't have that support, if you don't have that community that can help pull you out, it's a very tough road. People are a lot more willing to go to something that's comfortable to them. People don't like to be uncomfortable. If there's even an aspect of uncomfortableness, people are just going to go back into their shell. They're not going to come out, you know, they're not going to climb that mountain that they need to climb to get to where they need to be. Because it's easy. I would rather stay in my warm cabin than climb a freaking mountain. Absolutely. It doesn't help that people actually are rewarded and set up for success with this alpha beta dichotomy in certain areas. This idea of like business being ruthless. If for whatever reason, you're in a kind of toxic environment where being alpha is actually good, then you're really not set up for going away from that spectrum. Sometimes you get rewarded in these systems. You know, you have like alpha alpha men in dating situations where, you know, you treat a person you're going after like crap and that person is drawn into that and you sleep with them and then you say, well, I had success doing that. I mean, you're not going to be able to get that long-term relationship, but at least for that night, you found success and you found that dopamine hit and you're like, well, if I keep doing this, it keeps working. If I keep being this shitty person, I keep being able to spend nights with whoever I want. And so you're in this feedback loop of, I'm finding success being a shitty person. Why do I need to change? It's really easy to get discouraged. That's the real problem. I need to think more long-term. What will actually get me happiness over the long-term? This is actually something you brought up in a recent one with Carolyn, right? About satisfaction versus happiness. Yes. Thinking long-term. This alpha-beta dichotomy is really good at thinking about things in the short term, not in the long term. In general, we kind of talked about gender roles a bit, but in your opinion, you know, like what impact has gender roles played throughout human history in the rise of this so-called dominant man, you know, and how can breaking down those gender roles create more prestigious men who, you know, lead with this assertive kindness, but still bring value to our society? Alpha and beta is very rooted in gender roles itself. Uh, When you think about somebody who is beta, it is often associated with feminine traits. And again, those feminine traits are looked down on, which is terrible, but that's that's what it is. If you create a system where there is like positive masculinity and negative femininity, and then you say that you know, men fit into one of these two roles, you're going to get a lot of that polarization. You're going to have people who are uh, striving to meet those gender roles, even if that is not the best for them. People who could even have positive examples of that gender role, right? So you talk about like men being providers. Well, women can be providers in the same way if you led them. And then everybody would be happier because then you could have different arrangements in like family units or things like that. But because you have a woman who is acting in a kind of masculine way, you prevent that. So you're preventing real progress if you force yourself to stick with those gender roles. And then the alpha beta dichotomy kind of just arises as a natural consequence of those gender roles. Yeah, that way you said about, you know, women in these beta roles that have just arrived through history, you know, we started as these nomadic 
hunter gatherers. And I, I'm not 100 percent sure. I'll have to ask some resources. But hunter gatherer, that role wasn't really gendered. It just happened that more men tended to hunt, more women tended to gather. But it was, it, it was pretty equal. I mean, you saw women hunting, you saw men gathering. You know, because they were nomadic, they had this option of being able to meet so many new people. You're always interacting with new people that the the supply and the demand of a romantic relationship was perfect. There was a ton of supply. Everyone pretty much got laid. And now as, you know, we started going to these like agricultural cultures, we stopped interacting with people. You know, we got in these close-knit groups and because agriculture, the business of farming and livestock tended to be a male-dominated profession, women were like, well, I can't make it on my own anymore, so I have to find a man to marry. And since the man's doing all these, you know, farming and livestock, well, I have to do these quote-unquote beta roles of, you know, housework and taking care of the children, which aren't even beta roles. It's such a stupid thing. But now in the age of the internet, you know, we have these options to once again the supply of people that we can interact with is so high. You know, we're able to interact with the world that women don't need to do those so-called beta roles anymore. Women can make their own way in the world. They don't have to rely on the farmer. They can go out and make their way in whatever they want to do. And so now it's a situation where, you know, before women had to rely on men in these agricultural societies. Now I can rely on a woman. Once again, going back to that concept I've been talking about, we're in these partnerships now where I don't have to provide for my entire family. I'm not that farmer anymore that has to get up at 5 a.m. in the morning, go to bed at 10 p.m., work all day just to provide for my family. I have a partner who can also make their way in the world independently, and we can share in the responsibility of having a family. Or, you know, if you want to go out by yourself, you know, having family that helps you in that responsibility. But people have more time to focus on themselves, to create better versions of themselves, to do hobbies that they love. I think that's one of the positives of this pandemic is people that have had more time to be among family, safely be among family, do hobbies. I mean, right now there's the Wall Street bets is going crazy on Wall Street. You know, people have had time to do these things because they've realized that I don't need to support every single person. I can depend on my partner. I can depend on my family. And by doing so, it's allowed us to create better humans and hopefully a better society. Yeah, the way I see it is there's like two aspects to you know, what you just said. One is enabling more people to be in those roles that were exclusive to one gender, right? Yes. So being mm -hmm. a provider, for example, that's great for everybody because now everybody can be self-sufficient or be independent and not have to tie themselves to other people just to get anything done. And then the other part is also elevating the status of the things that were considered inferior before. So if you're not in the provider role, right, if you're taking care of children at home, it's always been an extremely important role. It just was looked down on. Whether it's a woman who chooses to stay at home and take care of the kids or a man who chooses to do it, if we can say that that is a positive thing in society and we should encourage that, then that is also the other half of the puzzle. Or whether it's like hobbies or doing other things that are not maybe economically productive or something like that, that's okay because 
we're allowing people to be authentic. And I think that was one of the key words in that uh, study, right? That authentic pride, being able to be authentic and not having to go along with expectations that that they cannot meet or don't want to meet is really liberating for so many people. I mean, kind of just to wrap this all up, you know, what, what are healthy ways to address the concept of this alpha beta situation in your in your opinion? You don't, yeah, have, you don't have to solve this issue. <laughs> yeah, I th- like from my own experience, the way I would go about it is uh, twofold. One is not having a certain expectations of myself, loving myself even if I don't fit into what society tells me is the successful role. And then extending that love to other people just because somebody else is not in an alpha role or something like that does not mean you can't extend that love to them. So being inclusive of people who don't meet certain expectations, including yourself, is how we're going to create this change. Well, you keep you keep ending these stories with beautiful statements, and I don't want to add anything to ruin it. <laughs> this is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not, because they're real. <laughs>